This is Movie Thoughts. My name is John Hastings. This is my sloppily recorded, intermittently insightful podcast where I share my thoughts and opinions on movies. Uh, We have a fan page on Facebook at Movie Thoughts Podcast, and you can follow my reviews on my Letterboxd account under the name Forager23. This is the 17th episode. There's a very popular movie history podcast called You Must Remember This by Karina Longworth. She'll do a lot of reading on a given historical period or a movie or an important figure from film history. She synthesizes all that reading and then um, she gives it back to her listeners with kind of her her take added. Basically though, so you you can get an appreciation for the history and you you don't have to do any of that reading yourself. What I'm going to do here, and this is the first of a number of episodes I want to do on historical eras, some uh, historical eras in uh, American film. I'm not going to do that. I am going to talk about a period in the history of American film. I'm, I want to answer this question, what was the American New Wave, or is does it make sense to talk about an American New Wave? Did it exist? But I, uh, unlike Karina Longworth, I haven't done any you know recent dedicated reading about it. I haven't done any research about it. These are just my thoughts based on the accumulation of years of haphazard study, you know, randomly, what I've read at random from articles and books and the classes I've taken. And, you know, I mean, if I was really wanted to talk about this and do this, probably do it justice. Um, There's some important books on, for example, New Hollywood, which for some people is synonymous with the American New Wave. Books like Mark Harris's Pictures at a Revolution or Peter Biskin's Raging Bulls and Easy Riders. I haven't read them. I have read reviews of the books and Tom Townsend might uh, remind us that that's better than reading the book because then I get both the opinion of the author of the book and the author of the review much more efficiently. Having said all that, you know, I have actually thought about this subject a lot and I actually have in the past at least studied it in more formal settings. If I do use a specific point or observation or idea from someone else, I'm going to try to make a note of it as I go along. Up front, I'll state a couple big influences on on me and my thinking about these these movies in this era. One is Robin Wood's book, Hollywood from Vietnam to Reagan. One of the first film studies books I ever read. I used it in high school for one of my first essays I ever wrote on movies. I was writing about The Graduate. Um, uh, another big influence, the American film class I I I, uh, took in college at the College of the Holy Cross, taught by Steve Weinberg, who's a great author, he's a great critic and a a great friend of mine. And then also the cinema, uh, the uh, American film course in the Cinema Studies program at NYU that was taught by the late Robert Sklar, and also his book, Movie Made America. And I don't know if he officially assigned his own book uh, as reading for the class, or if I just picked it up on my own because I was taking the class, but I I read the book and uh, took the class, so that was uh, all kind of blends together as being a big influence on me, uh, Robert Sklar's uh, take on this uh, period. A little bit more, a little bit more diffusely, um, two film critics, and coming from kind of opposite 
with opposite sensibilities about some of these movies, opposite takes on some of these movies have been important to me. Uh, Pauline Kael and Jonathan Rosenbaum. So like I said, they have very different takes on both the individual movies and also this era as a whole. Um, if we're thinking about the American New Wave or New Hollywood, and a lot of my thinking on the subject has to do with in some ways trying to reconcile some of the differences in their respective points of view or at least you know working out where one might make more sense than the other and then finally the last big influence there was this discussion group a message board on yahoo uh, yahoo groups it was called a film by and it was really devoted to discussing auteurism or an auteurist take on film criticism there was a lot of people participating. Lots of interesting uh, things were said about all sorts of movies. Uh, New Hollywood or the American New Wave was not the focus, though it came up somewhat regularly. But if I had to single out one person's contributions there for their impact on me in general when I think about movies, and also specifically to today's topic, it's uh, Bill Crone, who was a participant on that that message board. I really love Bill's work. I'd like to talk more about it in a future podcast. For now, I'll just mention that his thoughts on the the American New Wave and New Waves in general really shaped the way I was thinking about how to conceptualize this period. Let's start by getting a sense of the consensus version, the conventional version of the American New Wave. If we go to Wikipedia, it takes us to the New Hollywood page. So for Wikipedia, New Hollywood and the American New Wave are the same thing, or they're close enough to be the same thing that they all get the same entry under New Hollywood. And I'm not using Wikipedia because I think it's a definitive reference, but rather because I think it does represent a fair take of the consensus view, this conventional wisdom take on the story. And what does the consensus tells us uh, tell us about this? Well, we're talking about a period in American filmmaking starting in the late 1960s with movies like Bonnie and Clyde and Easy Rider. It lasts through the end of the 1970s, and we can argue about where to place the lines exactly. Later, I'm going to make a case for changing the boundaries quite a bit. But for now, let's just have in mind what's at the center of this consensus version. These are movies like The Wild Bunch, uh, Peter Bogdanovich's movie of The Last Picture Show, The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two. MASH and Nashville and McCabe and Mrs. Miller and The Long Goodbye, all by Robert Altman, Mean Streets and Sisters, Chinatown and Night Moves, Paul Mazursky's Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, and Hal Ashby's The Last Detail. I'd even add, if we're talking about New Hollywood, uh, THX 1138 and The Sugarland Express. These are all pretty famous movies. Everyone knows about them. You might at this point be asking why should why do we need to talk about them again you know or why listen to me talk about them in terms of why listen to me uh i'm i don't know i like to think my take is a little bit different from the conventional wisdom at least enough different enough to be of interest it's not an original or unique take as i I mentioned it's cobbled together from a number of sources but i think my synthesis is interesting um or it's been interesting to me i found it an interesting thing to think about and why talk about this period again? You know, there's there's already tons of writing on it. Other people have podcast about these movies. Would you would our time be better spent exploring, you know, the the movies of 1949? And you know that episode is coming up, the the films of 1949. But I think this is an important topic for 
a couple of reasons, or maybe just one reason with a couple facets. And, you know, the big reason is we're still living in its wake. We can separate out those facets. It's kind of difficult, but I think you can look at the movies of New Hollywood, and those are the movies that arguably have played the strongest role in influencing many, if not most, of today's most important American filmmakers. People like Paul Thomas Anderson, Quentin Tarantino, Wes Anderson, David O. Russell, the Safdie brothers. And you could add that some of the filmmakers who were actually central to that new Hollywood movement um, are still among our most important working filmmakers. Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg, Clint Eastwood. Let's just look at the Oscar nominations for Best Picture this year. We have a Martin Scorsese movie. We have Joker, which plays homage to movies from this period. We have Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is about Hollywood during this period and is influenced by movies from New Hollywood. We have Marriage Story, directed by Noah Baumbach, and that, you know, Baumbach has been deeply influenced by movies from that period. And he even directed a documentary about Brian De Palma, one of the major figures of New Hollywood and, uh, and, and the American New Wave. And maybe more controversially, I'd add, another major New Hollywood figure is George Lucas. And though Star Wars is often presented as being one of the movies that ushered in the end of this era and the start of something very different and even inimical to the spirit of New Hollywood, I think its relationship to the rest of the American New Wave or New Hollywood movies is more complicated. We are definitely living in the wake of Star Wars for, for better and for worse. And mostly, probably mostly for worse nowadays, except for Baby Yoda. You know, and going along with this, for many American film buffs from this, uh, you know, for, for many American film buffs, especially of my age and even um, older and younger, but uh, the movies from this era are really central to the sense of the, their, their canon, um, the, the entire film historic, world historical canon. They've replaced movies from earlier in Hollywood. They've replaced what I like to call the mid-century consensus art house canon. So that that would be films from filmmakers like Ingmar Bergman and, and Bresson and Fellini and Kurosawa. So old Hollywood and this mid-century art house uh, canon, they are important to many contemporary American film buffs only because of the influence those earlier movies had on new Hollywood rather than being important in their own right. And you can look at something like The Searchers where in some circles it seems like The Searchers is most notable as this, as a footnote to talking about Taxi Driver and other movies uh, from New Hollywood where uh, the filmmakers were said, you know, we're, I was inspired by The Searchers. And I remember having this conversation probably about 10 years ago now with someone about The Searchers who um, kind of saw it in that light. He had just seen The Searchers and he said, this is not a, that interesting a movie. This is not that good of a movie, but I'm, I'm glad I saw it because now I... I was, you know, glad to fill in that hole in my uh, appreciation of the, the films of Martin Scorsese. So it, for a lot of people, the American New Wave or the New Hollywood movies have really become the thing. And, and then the second facet, and again, it's related, but, you know, the story of New Hollywood, the story, uh, its myth plays a huge role in the consensus history of American film. And that that story, that history goes something like this. We have old Hollywood. We start out in old Hollywood and we've got the studio system and it perfects a certain kind of movie making. And 
in the studio system we get movies that are wildly popular but they're made with great skill maybe sometimes they're even great art but then due to a number of factors like competition from tv the growth of the counterculture the uh, ascendance of, of independent producers the studio system breaks down the movies become more and more out of touch with uh, the the audience especially younger audiences and then we have uh, from the wings uh, the new hollywood filmmakers come in and there's a renaissance in feature filmmaking a second golden age in american film or you know or a third if we can give the silent era its own golden age and this new hollywood is represented by movies that are in tune with the counterculture they're in tune with young hip audiences they offer higher artistic quality than you'd get on tv for the most part and artists real artists are in charge and then there's a tragic ending to this story in the consensus version at least movie like star wars come along and the studios pull back from giving free reign to filmmakers to make serious movies hollywood goes back into putting business first there's a new corporate era of blockbusters and prestige movies that don't take any risks so we've got this very powerful myth about what New Hollywood means and maybe what the American New Wave means. It may be the last really powerful myth we have when we talk about American film history, the last myth that has a grip on a wide uh, audience of uh, literate, thoughtful film watchers, American you know, film, film buffs, American movie fans. You know, you can you can certainly tell a story about, say, the American independent filmmakers who came up in the late '80s and early '90s, and you you can you can tell a story about them. It's a great story, and they definitely had a major impact on movies in the '90s and beyond. But that story has not achieved the mythic status of New Hollywood. In fact, it almost is presented as a echo of New Hollywood, or look, look, here's kind of the spirit of New Hollywood, kind of almost uh, got a chance to sort of live again for a couple of years. It doesn't really take on its own life. Part of the power of the myth is this idea that, you know, New Hollywood was the last time we had artistically ambitious movies, great movies, critically acclaimed movies, that also managed to reach a wide audience. And that were also, and this is important, central to a bigger cultural conversation. A movie like The Godfather was beloved by most critics at least it was beloved by audiences and it's a major cultural touchstone everyone would have seen it everyone would have been able to talk about it and people now look back at that era and they you know compare it with our own time and our own time comes up short the the best movies are not the most popular the there are still cultural touchstone movies um, movies that you can count on people having seen and count on being able to talk about, but those are movies like Black Panther, these kind of, you know, the you know the theme park movies, uh, the truly great works of our day, the truly great movies, and this is sort of my opinion, but also part of the this is you know part of this myth too, um, but you know to get to the truly great movies, you've got to go onto the internet and find enclaves of other eggheads if you want to have conversations about them. So I agree with parts of that myth, but I'm suspicious of it as well. And in a later episode, I want to talk more about the story about the end of New Hollywood and the era that followed and question the myth from that angle. But right now, I want to look more at the beginnings of the story and focus on this question. Does it make sense to look at New Hollywood as a new wave 
as, you know, it, should New Hollywood be synonymous with the American New Wave? If we go by Wikipedia, we might think they're the same thing, but maybe we should think about the American New Wave as being something a little different. Let's step back a bit, though, and we'll answer another question first. What is a new wave? If, if we want to talk about the American new wave, well, what's, what is a new wave in general? So we've got the French new wave, that's like the Ur new wave, the, the one that started it all. The Czech new wave, there's a new wave in Japanese filmmaking. So our, you know there are definitely differences among all these movements. Some, it's probably, we can really call them movements, they are really genuinely movements. Um, some seem more like kind of after-the-fact attempts to lump together movies that may not be that closely related. Is there anything that does kind of characterize new waves in general? Bill Crone proposed the following, and I like it. There are other ways to frame it. I like the way Bill does it. I think it's elegant. I think it leads to an interesting discussion, and it also is a little bit polemical because it will it leaves things out. So it might uh, give us, uh, you know, may allow us to kind of change our. A perception about something that is or is not a, a, a new wave or is or is not a movie that belongs to it or a filmmaker that belongs to it. And Bill is usually thinks about things in terms of form and content and breaking things down by form and then content. And he that's how his description breaks down here. He says, a new wave is characterized by one, this approach to filmmaking technique that is self-conscious about its place in film history, and that that's the form. And then two, a frankness about uh, sexual relationships, and that's the content. So stepping back and looking at Bill's definition, we might be tempted to want to expand Criterion 2. So we could say a frankness about sexual relationships or a frankness about history or other social issues. And I think that we do see this happening in uh, new waves that alongside the increased frankness about sexuality, you do see frankness about other social issues and history. But I think you need to keep, uh, it can't be an or. You've got to have that frankness about sexual relationships um, as a core criteria for, a core criterion for uh, a new wave. So historically, what we see happening in both new waves and contemporaneous non-new wave movies is a relaxing of conventions when it comes to portraying sex. But, I, you know, the way I would put it is we, uh, what I mean by frankness is we are, you know, we're not using coded, we're not using coded messages to deal with uh, these these issues of relationships between uh, men and women or to deal with uh, homosexual relationships. We're not using codes anymore. We are addressing it frankly. And a lot of the mainstream movies that relax uh, their portrayals of sex are still sort of working within these codes. Uh, the codes are maybe getting, maybe the, it's a little bit more of a wink, um, it's a it's less I'm not sure if you put it like less of a wink or it's a little bit more um out in the open, but they're still playing with the codes. We're in these new waves where where the codes are not part of it, these kind of coded messages. And I, I by codes here I'm not meaning like a production code, I mean more like um do we have to imply something rather than than state it frankly. So uh, new wave movies are allowed to state things frankly. They have to state things frankly by by this definition, by Bill's definition. That doesn't mean that sex has to be explicitly presented, and uh, sex and romance may not even be central to a given movie. But the, the important thing is that these relationships and these issues are not 
presented through these coded messages, no coded messages. So I want to compare uh, something, because those were Bill's criteria, and then Todd Berliner um, characterizes New Hollywood, so not talking about New Waves per se, but New Hollywood as follows, and this is from the Wikipedia page, but he says, uh, you know, these films, they have a, he's five things he points out. One, this tendency to integrate in narr- in these narratively incidental ways, these uh, devices that are counterproductive to the film's overt narrative purpose. So it's um, kind of these discursive or these more m- m- things that are more moody or things that don't really just push the plot along. So there's that that part of these movies. And uh, number two, there's a influence of European and, and Asian art cinema. Okay, um, and that's uh, maybe both in terms of form and content. Um, three, there's an uncertain and discomforting response provoked in the spectator um, from from these movies compared to typical old Hollywood movies. Four, there's and and this is kind of goes along with that last one. This there's an emphasis on irresolution. Um, ambiguity, ambivalence. They, there's more loose ends. We don't we don't need to tie up all the loose ends. And then finally, the sense that this these movies hinder narrative momentum, and you know isn't interested so much in generating suspense and excitement as earlier movies. And that kind of goes back to that first point as well. And for me, these are all sort of. Um, kind of getting these are sort of seem like they could be I guess ways to enact Bill Crone's criterion one so these are ways to kind of thoughtfully think of form and to make movies that are opposed to that traditional conventional form they're mostly within uh, criterion one there's not really much mention of content except to except if you think about like well they're bringing in this frankness maybe from European cinema so um you know, this brings up a, a point here to make is that, you know, both Bill's criteria and these these uh, what Todd, Todd Berliner's points about the New Hollywood, um, both are placed in a, this historical context. So, you know, New Waves by Bill's definition are situated in the context of an ongoing mainstream film industry. And if we actually kind of start to look at the relationship between the new wave or the new Hollywood filmmakers and the traditional industry, we can maybe differentiate the new waves country to country. For example, um, one of the characteristics of the original French new wave is that the first generation of French new wave filmmakers, they're coming from outside of the very, very fringes of the film industry. Uh, Godard, Truffaut, Romain Rivet, Chabrol, Luc Mollet, they, they all start as critics. They start as movie buffs. They're theorists. They're eggheads. They come up with an idea for the kind of movies they want to see, and then they go out and make them. They are not coming from the French film industry, and the, their path into the French film industry goes from critic to filmmaker. They don't kind of, uh, there's nothing really in between. New Hollywood, it's a very different case. So with New Hollywood, the relationships are a little more complicated because there's a couple group of filmmakers who are considered part of this new Hollywood era. So one, there's a group, an older group that got their start in TV in the 1950s, and then they moved to making feature films. And I would include Sam Peckinpah, Robert Altman, Sidney Lumet, 
Frank Perry, John Frankenheimer. If you think about some TV comedy writers who who made that same move into features, uh, you could add Woody Allen, Mel Brooks, and Carl Reiner. That's an older group. And then there's a younger group, which is like the film brat group. And they may have spent some time at film school. Most, uh, Many of them didn't graduate, but they kind of were in the film school orbit. And then for whatever reason, uh, this group has this connection to Roger Corman and the low-budget m- movies Roger Corman was producing. So this group would be Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese, Brian De Palma, George Lucas, John Milius. I would add Monty Hellman, who got his start with Corman. His, his roots are coming out of theater uh, rather than film school. Peter Bogdanovich uh, would be part of that group as well. And then there's another, it's not really a group, but just this other path into into making, into being a director, into making movies that was pursued by several actors who became directors. So I you know, would think of John Cassavetes, Dennis Hopper, even Paul Mazursky, and then uh, Clint Eastwood as well. And I note also the the dog that didn't bark. There's an, a relative absence of people from. You, you, you might think there'd be a group of directors who established themselves firmly in old Hollywood, but then transitioned to new Hollywood. And there's not really a, a big group of those guys. Um, Stanley Kubrick may be the one exception. You could look at The Killing, Paths of Glory, and Spartacus. Are they are they're transitional movies, but they're really old Hollywood in most ways. And then he goes on to make 2001, which is an important new Hollywood movie. More often, though, uh, the case plays out like Blake Edwards' career, where he kept making movies even into the era of new Hollywood, but we don't really consider his work part of that that group or that movement. Um, and we can think about uh, the ways his movies work, even the movies he made in the 1980s feel stylistically uh, linked to the movies he was making in the early 60s, even if the content somehow was, he was able to, you know, there's a, a freeing up of some of the content he could deal with. These are these groups aren't meant as hard lines, um, but I think you know we can look at these uh, we can look at these three or three groups, and they are responsible for making the core of the canon of the of the new Hollywood. And if we think of the consensus view, then this is the core of a proposed American new wave in this consensus view. And, um, you know, there the, there are some important people, I think, um, who, who I haven't mentioned yet. I'm going to get to some of them later. And I'd note, too, uh, that of these filmmakers, really, it's only Peter Bogdanovich who who followed that career that that path similar to the Cahiers, uh, Cahiers critics who became filmmakers. So he started as a critic historian and then moved into filmmaking as part of that group with Roger Corman. But what I want to emphasize here is that is that in general, compared to the French New Wave filmmakers, one we've, we've got this variety of backgrounds, and not that the French New Wave filmmakers have this kind of monolithic background, but they have a similar one. They start on the outside, uh, they make and they start from the outside and they make their own films. And uh, they they don't do apprenticeships, you know, they're not apprenticing. And in America, we don't have these outsiders in the same way. We have this group from TV. TV people are outsiders to feature films, but not to the industry as a whole. They're working their way up. You know, the movie brats, similarly, they're going through a channel to get to make movies. Film school is a new thing, but it's still this kind of channel. And then they all, uh, or many of them, apprentice with Roger Corman or, or for making in making Roger Corman movies. 
the French New Wave directors start out their careers by making very unconventional work, and they start, many of them start with their style almost fully formed. They're these, these idiosyncratic, iconoclastic styles already fully formed. You can look at Breathless, and Godard didn't work his way up to becoming Godard in the way we might look at uh, Sam Peckinpah's first feature, The Deadly Companions. And you know, if we want to find the Peckinpah of the Wild Bunch in The Deadly Companions, it's there embryonically at best, whereas the Godard who made Breathless is very apparently the Godard who made Contempt. You know, it's it's right it's right there from the beginning. Same thing with you could look at like Jacques Rivette. Uh, his first feature, Paris, belongs to us. It feels completely of a piece with uh, Out One from Ten Years Later. But if you look at the debut feature of Francis Ford Coppola, Dementia Thirteen, which he made for Roger Corman, he's doing work. He's doing genre work. Uh, you know, it, it isn't really anything like the conversation, and that's like maybe one of the central kind of Coppola movies. It's it isn't. Uh, it doesn't really point the way necessarily to where Coppola is going to end up, and that is not the case for the for the French new wave filmmakers. And I should also add here uh, that the French new wave, you know, came first, and n- at least came before New Hollywood, and n- the New Hollywood directors were often responding to that work. You know, like Todd Berliner's point, they're responding to European art cinema in general. There's probably this whole web of influences. Um, you know, where we'd want to talk about Rossellini and Fellini and Bergman and their influence on the the French New Wave, and then the influence that the all those filmmakers plus the French New Wave had on American filmmakers, and and then vice versa. But for now, we'll just say that you know we'll go back to Todd Berliner's points: New Hollywood movies, they're influenced by what was going on in Europe. In some ways, you could think that the filmmakers are trying to figure out a way to take the ideas from European filmmakers and apply them in a Hollywood context. And it's these two points, kind of these last two points. One, that the the French uh, New Wave filmmakers are these outsiders. They have fully formed iconoclastic styles from the beginning, you know, uh, and the New Hollywood filmmakers aren't. And then the second point that the New Hollywood filmmakers are really responding to their European counterparts. It's these two observations that has led to there being from some quarters this attempt to mount a revisionist take on New Hollywood um, to kind of puncture that myth of New Hollywood. Manola Dargis has written several articles pushing back against the idea that the 1970s in in Hollywood was this golden age, was, was a, a kind of a pure golden age, just pushing back against this New Hollywood myth, partly by arguing that, you know, as opposed to... Uh, uh, genuine new waves, like in France, what happened in Hollywood was more about people who were already inside the systems, maybe not at its center, but inside in the system. They co-opted these rebellious ideas, both in terms of form and content, as a marketing ploy. They wanted to connect with hip audiences. They weren't really trying to challenge audiences. They were trying to flatter audiences. The Their new ways to tell stories was seen more as a novelty. They're responding to what they're doing in Europe, but the response is sort of superficial. And uh, Jonathan Rosenbaum is one of the skeptics who kind of uh, put, kind of puts puts this take forward as well. And I, I think, you know, I think Dargis and the other people who take this line have their own agenda, and I think they that that makes them go too far with their case. I think, you know, there's 
this really extreme skepticism where people start arguing that the Godfather is horribly overrated or the Godfather is actually pernicious in some ways. Um, and, you know, I do think that some of these uh, exaggerated, you know, these cases go too far. It seems to me that the response tends to move away less about the individual movies and more about the legacy of the movies and the kind of the myth of the movies, what the, you know, attacking what the movie has come to mean to people. And, uh, you know, for example, with The Godfather, the, the, the negative, these, these negative or skeptical takes that I've read on The Godfather from, from folks like Jonathan Rosenbaum and others, they do seem to be describing a different movie than is on the screen. They describe a movie that's much more conventional than what is actually there. It's partly because, you know, The Godfather has become such a classic that it can be hard to grasp just how strange of a movie it is. You know, you know, in the first hour, our main character, ostensibly uh, Michael Corleone, is hardly on screen at all. You know, this movie makes this huge stylistic shift in the middle, which is uh, not a thing many movies do. And then there's all these almost um, essay-like discursions from the central narrative throughout. Having said all that, and like I said, I don't endorse that extremely skeptical point of view. I... I guess I endorse a more moderately skeptical point of view about the myth of the new Hollywood. And I'm, you know, to kind of get back to what what I'm you know what I've been leading up to, I'm skeptical that new Hollywood taken as it is presented in this consensus history is really that much of a new wave. If you take the unquestionably central to the canon movies of the French New Wave and then take the unquestionably central to the canon movies of New Hollywood. I think that the American movies are less radical and they are more tied to established genres. They're, you know, usually these so-called revisionist takes on those genres, but they're tied to the genres nonetheless. And, you know, talking about my skepticism, uh, one thing that makes me kind of more skeptical is the way the consensus conventional wisdom take on new Hollywood paints the relationship between these revisionist takes on genres and the old Hollywood genre movies themselves. These new Hollywood partisans, in my opinion, exaggerate the sophistication of these revisionist takes uh, against the purportedly more conventional examples of the genre. So, you know, just focusing on the Western uh, as an example, a lot of the new Hollywood rhetoric either it either kind of writes out of history or just obscures the the richness and complexity of westerns going back all the way to the 1930s or even maybe earlier they want to try to make it seem like the western was a monolithic entity from the 30s to the 60s and it wasn't until people like Sam Peckinpah and Robert Altman and Arthur Penn turned their hand to the genre that there was sophistication and nuance and complications of the standard patriotic myths of the West. And I first I'll say I love Sam Peckinpah and Robert Altman, and I like a lot of uh, Arthur Penn's work, but I would argue, you know, that there are nuanced, complicated Westerns, even art Westerns, going back almost to the beginning of the genre, I'd point to movies like Raoul Walsh's The Big Trail from 1930 and then all the way through to Andre de Toth's The Day of the Outlaw in 1959, which I've uh, talked about before on this podcast. I'd even argue that John Ford's Stagecoach is 
an art western. It isn't just a conventional western, at least as it was made. It was Ford's statement after a decade of not making westerns, of of his perfect version of the of the western. It's very thoughtful. It's very considered. It's only conventional in retrospect because it was so influential, but it is not uh, conventional in its genesis. So that's a little bit of a digression from the main point I want to make, though, which is that even with these revisionist takes, we're still, we still are within the familiar genres of classical Hollywood. Whereas the relationship between the movies of the French New Wave to genres and genre filmmaking is much more tenuous, it's more impressionistic. Godard made movies inspired by crime films and thrillers, but it is hard to see his movies as thrillers. Uh, Breathless doesn't really work as a thriller. But The Wild Bunch and McCabe and Mrs. Miller are recognizably westerns. One of the key movies in my mind that points the way to how many of the new Hollywood movies works, uh, it's kind of a new Hollywood movie avant la lettre, is Orson Welles' Touch of Evil. It That movie, Touch of Evil, provides kind of a blueprint or like a framework for how a new Hollywood filmmaker could work. You take this genre material and make it personal in some way, filter it through a personal style, add some personal um, touches to the theme. You can look at Sam Fuller's entire career as providing a template for new Hollywood filmmakers. His, his movies are almost all recognizably of some kind of genre. They're war pictures, they're westerns, they're thrillers. But his sensibility and his ambition causes him to color outside the lines. I think the lines are still there, though, uh, in Sam Fuller and in most of the new Hollywood movies. Whereas in movies like Breathless or even Shoot the Piano Player, the lines are redrawn, they're rearranged, or just erased. I think then it is fair to look at new Hollywood and those movies and then make the judgment that at least the consensus version of New Hollywood, that conventional take, it doesn't work like a new wave. It is a disappointing uh, new wave. It's not a, it doesn't really do what we would hope to do from a new wave if we look at the French new wave as our, as our example, or as our exemplar. Having said that, you know, there are American movies that do work like the iconoclastic work from the French New Wave. Some movies are from filmmakers I've already mentioned. Um, so some are from filmmakers who are in the consensus version of New Hollywood or central to that. And then some are from filmmakers I'll get to in a moment who generally are left out of or, or seen as very peripheral to uh, New Hollywood. But, um, you know, and those works, the more iconoclastic works, either from the uh, from from either of those groups of directors have not been central to the canon. Uh, the, the New Hollywood canon centers around a group of movies that I think are great movies. I wouldn't want you to take anything I'm saying now or about to say as an arguing against the greatness of movies like uh, The Godfather or uh, The Wild Bunch. But in uh, comparison, those movies are not as iconoclastic as those of the French New Wave and not as iconoclastic as some of these other American movies. They are, in comparison, easier movies to take. Um, you know, like I say, I'm not going to take an extremely skeptical stance. I don't want to denigrate movies like The Godfather or Nashville, 
But if we want to say, let's place a little more value on iconoclasm, let's pay a little bit more attention, relatively speaking, at least to them, some, some interesting things will start to happen. One is that we get a group of films that gives a picture of an American new wave that is more comparable to the French new wave in terms of independence of vision and iconoclasm. And we see a movement that starts to be more contemporaneous with what was happening uh, overseas in France, and even to the point that the influence starts to go the other way. So you can look at the independent New York movie Little Fugitive from 1953, which acts as an inspiration both for uh, American independent filmmakers, but also for Francois Truffaut um, over in, in France at the beginning of the French New Wave. So some movies that I think uh, should be central to any discussion of an American New Wave, if, if an American New Wave exists, it's, I think, because of these, some of these movies. Uh, so first, the first name I'd bring up, I think, you know, very central. Uh, I did mention him before, John Cassavetes. So he made Shadows in 1959, so so kind of contemporaneous with what was going on in France. He uh, Shadows is this truly idiosyncratic vision. It's a unique style. It's definitely an attempt to deal, frankly, with its subject matter. Cassavetes' later work takes on a different style and a similar set of concerns, but a different style. But his later work is also, you know, genuinely iconoclastic. He had to self-finance a lot of his work. He is uh, is making very personal movies. He is not trying to kind of smuggle his ideas into a cop movie, or or uh, he's not trying to put his style to work making a horror film. He is uh, not you know, working in the in normal Hollywood genre of filmmaking. He's doing something very different. We can look a couple of years after Shadows to look at things like Shirley Clark's The Connection, and then I would also think about looping in some of the documentary work from the Cinema Verite movement. Uh, those movies, I think, fit into the new wave as well as movies from what we would also maybe consider the, you know, avant-garde. So I would look at um, a lot of Andy Warhol's movies or movies from the Kucher brothers uh, from this time period. And, and those, you know, not only because they're iconoclastic, but because they then led into being influential on uh, some of the other, um, some other important work. So movies like Martin Scorsese's Who's That Knocking at My Door and then even Mean Streets which was like an indie production that was picked up by Warner Brothers those two movies by Martin Scorsese are coming out of um, you know a lot of, of things but there's this influence of Cassavetes there's this influence of, of Andy Warhol and other uh, kind of New York City avant-garde filmmakers along those lines we've got kind of the underground movies from the beginning of De Palma's career, Brian De Palma's Greetings and Hi Mom. You know, these are two extremely important American movies, in, in my opinion. I, I don't think they are underrated, per se. Everyone uh, who watches them likes them, and especially Hi Mom. Maybe maybe Greetings is slightly underrated. But I think they're generally seen as minor. A lot of people would look at them as footnotes to De Palma's later career in the way that kind of similarly to the way people talk sometimes about stereo and crimes of the future uh, when talking about David Cronenberg, that, you know, the main interest of those movies is what they tell us about the later work. But I think, at least in the case of, of Greetings and Hi, Mom, 
Um, and I, I don't know that I'd make the same argument for stereo or crimes of the future, but for, for greetings and hi mom, I think they're major works. I think they are central to De Palma's concerns. Um, I think you can read a lot of later work as De Palma as him trying to figure out how to smuggle this type of underground satirical iconoclastic sensibility into more conventional frameworks. Um, having said that, you know, De Palma had a, a real interest in being an entertainer. So I don't. I think his movement into thrillers and horror movies makes sense. I mean, I, I wouldn't go overboard with my interpretation there, but I, I do think that the, the the kind of satirical underground sensibility of Greetings and Hi Mom is is really central to any understanding of De Palma. So I think those are those are two major movies and are definitely American new wave movies. And another movie that has a good reputation is well known, but if we think about it in terms the terms I'm talking about. Um, it moves from the fringes to the center uh, is David Holtzman's Diary by Jim McBride. And a couple uh, filmmakers, again, along along with these guys who are central, again, not fringe, but central to any discussion about an American new wave. So if there's an American new wave, we've got these three guys, they're outsiders, but I would put them at the center. First, the very great Robert Downey Sr. He's a genuine underground filmmaker his major work, Putney Swope, is in my revised canon, would be central to the American New Wave in the way that something like, um, you know, Bonnie and Clyde is currently, or Easy Rider is currently. And if you want to see a Western that goes beyond revisionism into some entirely new dimension, I would look at his Greaser's Palace. It's a very difficult movie to describe, um, but it is definitely not uh, a case of kind of providing it's I mean like I said, difficult to describe definitely not a case of, of making like a more complicated western or a, a more nuanced western it's something really completely different um, you know we used to put it on I used to work in a video store we'd put it on on the in-store monitor and it was a you know guaranteed that customers would just kind of start staring at it and eventually asking us what the heck is that that you're playing um, one of the one of the uh, most um, reliable movies to get that response. So Robert Downey Sr. Uh, is first. Second, the 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 handful, the three films that Norman Mailer made um, during this time. You know, Mailer's reputation as a writer, as a novelist, has you know diminished over you know at least the last decade, if if not more. I, I still think he's pretty great. Um, I'm bringing him up here just for his movies, though those three movies, and he brings a really underground outsider sensibility to this he you know these are movies he he paid for himself he distributed himself no studio is going to underwrite these these movies the sensibility it's truly underground and uh finally third perhaps the greatest of these three although maybe uh the least known today is robert kramer he made the great countercultural epics uh, ice and milestones and among other movies um you know downey and mailer both at least have their movies uh, from this period available as these DVD box sets from Criterion. So there's a little bit of kind of recognition that they belong to a, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're important, even if, um, you know, I think that I, I would make them more central, bring more attention to them. But Kramer, uh, his movies are on DVD, but he doesn't have a nice, like, box set. He hasn't been canonized in the same way. Um, you know, Kramer was not a guy who, you know, if you, you could make that, that, the kind of Manola Dargis or Jonathan Rosenbaum argument that 
a lot of the new Hollywood directors were using these countercultural ideas to sell Hollywood product. That is not the case with Kramer. He is not using hipness as a marketing tool. He is making movies that are deeply connected to the counterculture. So that's my take, or my, maybe my appeal, my my uh, polemic here. Um, I don't. I'm not. I didn't do any. Say any of this to denigrate movies like The Godfather. I I would really look at it more as just putting a plug into, um, putting a plug in for movies like uh, the stuff by Robert Downey Sr. or Robert Klamer. You know, maybe watch um, Ice or Milestones rather than Bonnie and Clyde for the thirteenth time. I've uh, gone on way too long at this point. This is my longest episode, and I just want to leave it with this though. So here, the argument I've been making is that. We've got this myth of the new Hollywood, this consensus vision of new Hollywood, and that myth, that consensus vision moves attention away from American movies that are more iconoclastic or, or genuinely iconoclastic. Um, and that may make it seem like I'm only interested in iconoclasm or, or kind of rocking the boat, but in an upcoming episode, I, I want to deal with kind of the opposite idea. Uh, that the myth of the new Hollywood has also taken attention away from contemporaneous movies that are that were coming out of the mainstream, that were coming out of Hollywood, that were less hip, they were more square, and uh, I, I think, uh, though I think still worthwhile, but this new Hollywood myth has taken attention away from these these more uh, square movies. So I'd like to uh, spend some time in an upcoming podcast talking about some of those movies from the, uh, as I call it, the other 60s. But I have said enough for now. Take care.